This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are glad to report that uh, we've had a chance to check out Kill the Messenger, the new movie about Gary Webb. We talked last week quite a bit about the tragic saga of Gary Webb and how his excellent reporting got rewarded with, uh, in essence, censorship and him losing his job. And we'll have more to say about it in our second segment today. But let us begin as we like to do, with On This Date in History, because we think that uh, you must look back at the past to understand the present. Our date in question is the 16th of October. And it was on October 16th, in the year 1859, that abolitionist John Brown led a raid against the arsenal in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, in an attempt to incite an insurrection and bring an end to slavery in America. Brown was later convicted of treason and was hanged for the crime. On October 16th in 1899, Italian physicist and radio pioneer Guglielmo Marconi demonstrated his wireless telegraph in a broadcast of yacht racing results off the coast of Long Island, New York. And of course, as we all know, the reporting on yacht racing results has never been the same since. On this date in 1934, the embattled Chinese communists broke through the nationalist enemy lines and began an epic flight from their encircled headquarters in southwest China. Known as the Long March, the retreat lasted 368 days and covered 6,000 miles. Civil war in China between the nationalists and the communists had broken out in 1927. In 1931, communist leader Mao Zedong was elected chairman of the newly established Soviet Republic of China. Secrecy and rearguard actions confused the nationalists, and it was several weeks before they realized that the main body of the Red Army had fled. It was on October 16, 1946, at Nuremberg, Germany, where 10 high-ranking Nazi officials were executed by hanging for crimes against humanity, crimes against peace, and war crimes during World War II. Among them were Joachim von Ribbentrop, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Wilhelm Frick, Minister of the Interior, and Alfred Rosenberg, primary formulator of Nazi ideology. Well, more to say about that in a moment. Finally, it was on October 16th in 1973 that U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and North Vietnamese diplomat Lee Duc Tho were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the Paris Peace Accords. Kissinger, as you would expect from him, accepted, but Tho declined the award until such time, quote, as peace is truly established, unquote. These last two items lead directly into our quote and quip of the day. Our quote of the day comes from Hermann Goering, who cheated the hangman at Nuremberg when poison was slipped into his cell the night before. Said he to a translator at Nuremberg, Naturally, the common people don't want war, but after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag people along. Voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to do the bidding of their leaders. This is easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and for exposing the country to danger. It works the same in every country. Our quip of the day comes from one of our favorites, comedian Tom Lear. Said he back in the 70s, political satire became obsolete when they awarded Henry Kissinger the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Kissinger, as we've noted on this program before, encouraged Richard M. Nixon to operate a secret bombing war against Laos and Cambodia, wherein millions were killed. It was quite unnecessary, accomplished virtually nothing, except to leave, you know, a million people dead in the field. This is the guy that they awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to. Our jokes of the day come from our archives. I was digging through them the other day and came up with a couple of nuggets. First, this one, a quote from H.L. Mencken, quote slash joke. If all the lawyers were hanged tomorrow and their bodies sold to a mahjong factory, we'd be freer and safer and our taxes would be reduced by almost half. The second comes from a list of potential bumper stickers. I especially like this one, which is the proctologist called, they found your head. Our good news of the week for today's program is this. Sweden surprised its allies and offended Israel last week by announcing it will formally recognize Palestine as an independent state. Evidently, the incoming Prime Minister, Safan Lovin, announced the shift, which had been part of his Social Democratic Party's election platform. Both Israel and the U.S. criticized the move as premature and counterproductive to peace. But Foreign Minister Margot Wallstrom said, it's not the United States who decides our foreign policy. To which we say, good for the Swedes. Our anecdote of the week refers to actor Jeremy Renner, who plays the lead role in Kill the Messenger, playing Gary Webb. The press is reporting that Renner has lost faith in the press. At least Margot Stern writing in the DailyBeast.com noted that. Apparently the actor tries to avoid watching cable news or reading news sites, quote, because I'm sickened by what gets attention, the sensationalism, hacked celebrity phones, etc., he added, what's a headline anymore? We can say we're at war, then something else comes up two days later and it's gone. Renner blames our diminished attention spans on modern technology. Boy, and speaking of that, in other news regarding Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, I actually have to stop right there. I, I don't know who the hell Mila Kunis is. And I, I, I don't know, Ashton Kutcher, didn't he, mar- didn't he marry Demi Moore? It's about all I know. It's about all I want to know. It's about all we're going to talk about. Because this is... Radio Parallax. We try and steer clear of the real crap, you know? Our stat of the day, and this one's actually a little bit old. This comes from the archival records, but I think I'm going to go with it today anyway. I think it's from about three years ago. Which is, the doctors remain the most trusted professionals according to the British Medical Journal. According to an annual poll conducted by Mori, a, com- a London-based international research company, 90% of the British public approve of the way doctors do their jobs. Doctors are trusted to tell the truth by 91% of the public, compared to 72% for judges, 74% for professors, and 87% for teachers. Oddly enough, they were unable to find any respondents who thought that lawyers would tell the truth. Actually, I made that up. And although I have, for the most part, over the years, had mostly good feelings about my profession and those who practice in it, I got a couple stories of late we're going to tell in the months to come that are, well, a little disturbing. Let's move on to our letters section. In fact, this is not a letter written to us. We haven't got too many letters from anybody the last couple of weeks. What's going on? You should drop us a line, dear listener, at info at radioparallax.com and tell us what you're thinking. And, and while you're at it, send us a couple jokes. Is there something you'd like to see on the website, which we have woefully neglected for years? We're currently trying to give it a reevaluation and spruce it up. Give us your thoughts. 
Anyway, letters. This is a letter to The Economist, which I think is pretty irresistible. A Mike Peterson wrote them, make reference to a piece they'd done about getting from A to B in Costa Rica. Said Mr. Peterson, I was amused by your reference to Costa Rica's old system of street addresses. Uh, As you may or may not know, the Costa Ricans have the world's worst mail delivery (laughs) service in the world because, well, it's just hard to find addresses when it's like... The third block south of the schoolhouse. Anyway, Mr. Peterson went on to note, the most unhelpful address I heard when I spent time in that country was, quote, 200 meters south of the tree where the president's son died in a car crash, unquote. (laughs) Said Peterson, I never was able to find it. Frankly, that reminds us of one of the great quotes from Rodney Dangerfield, who said, I always get lost. The directions they give me, they're no help. People tell me, you got to turn left, down where the old schoolhouse used to be. And, you know, actually, I actually have a kind of a bonus quip I need to throw in before we leave this section of the show. This comes from a review in the Week magazine of the new movie, The Judge. My favorite line is as follows. There are moments in The Judge that have all the grace and subtlety of housebreaking a dog. All right, and on that note, I think we should jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for gay marriage with the news that the Supreme Court, by failing to take up one of the cases that might potentially go before it, in essence, legalized same-sex marriages in many states throughout the country. But oddly enough, it was also a bad week last week for same-sex unions with the news that zookeepers in Japan abandoned a four-year-long attempt to get a pair of spotted hyenas to mate after discovering that both animals were male. Zookeepers said they repeatedly tried to coax Kami and Komuntori into breeding, but the canines, quote, remained confrontational, unquote, and reportedly kept attacking each other. Eventually, the zoo decided to check the sex of Kami, who was thought to be female, and medical tests revealed that she was, in fact, a he. And no, we don't know what this says about the state of veterinary science in Japan, but reportedly the zoo is now looking to acquire a female spotted hyena. And Mr. Millen is quick to point out this whole thing is no laughing matter. <laughs> and it was an ugly week last week for taunting with the news that the cast and crew of the BBC car show Top Gear was evidently chased out of Argentina by an angry mob. Yes, the story is that host Jeremy Clarkson was cruising around the port city of Ushuaia, I guess it's pronounced, which lost hundreds of sailors in the 1982 Falkland Islands war between Argentina and Great Britain. Apparently he had a Porsche with a license plate H982FKL. Locals saw that as a taunting reference to Argentina's defeat, and they surrounded his car, banging it with sticks and rocks until it sped across the border into Chile. Clarkson claimed the plate number was just a coincidence, but the host does have a record of offensive behavior on the show. Reportedly, he once drove a Jaguar through India with a toilet installed in the trunk, 
evidently a dig at the local plumbing, while his Mexican episode featured many jokes implying that Mexicans are lazy. And it was both a bad and ugly week last week for abortion rights. There's not much funny about this item. Last week, a federal appeals court allowed a sweeping new abortion law to go into effect in Texas, which prompted the immediate closure of 13 abortion clinics. The decision by the three-judge panel of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans was the latest ruling in a year-long battle over the stringent restrictions which were passed last July by the Republican-led Texas legislature and require all abortion clinics in the state to meet the same staffing and building standards of major surgical centers. Only eight abortion providers now remain in Texas. Isn't there some way we can sell that place back to Mexico? Speaking of Mexico, I think we have to talk a little bit about uh, what the drug war has done to that country, which has now lost like 70,000 people to civil unrest, more than we lost in combat in Vietnam, and we're a country three times as large as Mexico. I don't know if you caught this story, but apparently Mexican authorities are, have disarmed an entire police force in the southern city of Iguala after 22 officers got arrested in connection with last month's massacre of a group of unarmed students. Apparently, they opened fire, killed six, then abducted 43 other students. A mass grave was found this week containing dozens of burned bodies. This has everything to do with the fact that the authorities in Mexico, the police in particular, are uh, bought by the Mexican drug cartels, which derive vast sums of money by moving drugs from Central and South America into this country. Something we'll continue to have things to say about, like later on in this program. All right, on a considerably lighter note, but also irritating, we have this. Elementary schools in Richmond, Washington, have decided to remove swing sets from school playgrounds. They're under pressure from insurers. Said school district spokesman Steve Agard, swings are the most unsafe of all the playground equipment. But many residents disagree, saying that playing on swings is all part of growing up. They were our great joy, said one local. I'm glad we used that Mencken quote. All right, we do need a little bit of follow-up on some good news we had recently that may be even better news. Apparently, according to the Washington Post, the the physiologic benefits of physical exertion are well-documented. It's thought to release endorphins, which combat pain, and endocannabinoids, which induce pleasure. A new Swedish study now has found that exercise may also reduce the risk of becoming depressed, to which we add, duh, But I guess they had to decide what it was that was doing this, and researchers at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden posited that the protein PGC1-alpha-1, which increases in muscles during exercise, actually protects the brain from depression. Now, in a piece in the week, they describe how to test their theory. They genetically engineered mice to have high levels of the protein, then subjected these mice and a control group to very levels of stress. After five weeks, the normal mice showed signs of depression. No, we don't even want to get into how it is you assess depression in a mouse. Mr. McMillan suggests, see if Mickey has touched the cheese. But if you're keeping score, the researchers believe that PGC1-alpha-1 produces an enzyme that turns kynurinine, a metabolite linked to depression, into kyanuric acid, which could be passed easily out of the body. Said co-author Jorge Ruas, we think our findings will help support the use of physical exercise in the prevention and treatment of depression. We've said it before in this program, we'll say it again, one of the few things in the world that's probably all it's cracked up to be is exercise. It has wonderful effects on the body, wonderful effects on the mind, and 
Apparently, they're just finding out about this over in Sweden. Or at least, well, they're documenting how it works, which is, I guess, a good thing. I shouldn't be uh, hinting that they deserve an ignoble award for this. More power to them. All right, we've got a few minutes left in our first segment. Uh, oh, we do want to note, by the way, that the governor of the southern Mexican state, where those 43 college students disappeared after a confrontation police, said last Saturday that some of the bodies recovered from those clandestine graves did not match the missing young people. Oh, well, then I guess you're off the hook. And here's an item we love. Just have to love this headline. This comes from a piece by Rosana Zia from the Los Angeles Times. The headline is, California cities carefully build along Newport Inglewood Fault. Yes, now it's it's a well-known fact that here in California we have earthquake faults everywhere and earthquakes on a fairly regular basis. This has not stopped real estate developers from going hell-bent for leather to build everywhere. I was not aware until I read this article that the area around Signal Hill, described in the piece as having been transformed from a gritty industrial zone to an upscale neighborhood of homes, parks, and hiking trails. I remember the places being filled with oil wells. But I guess it's gone upscale, but they're building carefully, according to the headline. The piece notes that in accordance with state law, homes were carefully built around the fault, and parks and trails buffered areas where the ground could split open. You know, a darn good policy in our view. It's noted that California lawmakers this year agreed to spend millions to speed up the mapping of faults after stalling such work for nearly two decades. Gee, I wonder why. The move means that more parts of California will be subject to the state's strict earthquake law, which generally prohibits construction on top of active vaults and requires developers to conduct extensive underground studies to pinpoint where the faults are. Well, I got to tell you, having grown up in the East Bay, in Fremont in particular, I've always been amused by the fact that the Fremont BART station is literally built into, into the Hayward Earthquake Fault. In fact, the nearby hospital is right, is right, virtually built upon the fault. City Hall and the police station are right on the fault. And a lot of fairly luxurious homes are built right on the edge of the fault. It's pretty nuts, and yet another example of how it is that developers in this state, I guess and as in most states, just get their way, no matter how nuts. Speaking of nutty stories, let's go out with this one, a follow-up on some an item we were kicking around many years back. Peace in the New York Times by James Risen, someone we need to get on this program. He's done some excellent work on national security issues, and uh, in a conjunction with the new documentary about... Um, Edward Snowden, we really ought to seek Mr. Risen. I think that uh, uh, Christina Borgeson suggested to us years ago we needed to get him on the show. I think Christina's right about that. But in this wonderful piece, he takes up the issue of, well, whatever happened to all those crates full of shrink-wrapped $100 bills that were sent off to Iraq so many years back? To quote from the piece, Not long after American forces defeated the Iraqi government of Saddam Hussein in 2003, caravans of trucks began to arrive at Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington on a regular basis, unloading an unusual cargo, pallets of shrink-wrapped $100 bills. The cash, withdrawn from Iraqi government accounts held in the U.S., was loaded onto Air Force C-17 transport planes bound for Baghdad where the Bush administration hoped it would provide a quick financial infusion for Iraq's new government and the country's battered economy. According to Risen, over the next year and a half, 12 to $14 billion in cash was sent to Iraq 
via the airlift, and an additional $5 billion was sent by electronic transfer. Notes risen, exactly what happened to that money after it arrived in Baghdad became one of the many unanswered questions from the chaotic days of the American occupation. Finding the answer became the job and obsession of Stuart W. Bowen Jr., a friend from Texas of President George W. Bush, who back in 2004 was appointed to serve as a special inspector general to investigate corruption and waste in Iraq, and what a crackerjack job they did. Notes risen. Before his office was finally shut down last year, <laughs> last year, Bowen believed he might have succeeded, but only partly in that mission. Now, Peace notes that most of the money was probably used by the Iraqi government in some way, at least that's what Bowen concluded. But for years, Bowen could not account for billions more until his investigators finally had a breakthrough. They discovered that $1.2 to $1.6 billion had been stolen and moved to a bunker in rural Lebanon for safekeeping. Said Bowen, I don't know how the money got to Lebanon. If I knew that, we would have made more progress on the case. Noted Risen, Bowen kept the discovery and his investigation of the cash-filled bunker in Lebanon, which his office codenamed Brick Tracker, secret. And he's never publicly discussed it until now. And his frustration that neither he nor his investigation can fully account for the missing money was evident in a series of interviews. Said Bowen, billions of dollars were been taken out of Iraq over the last 10 years illegally. In this investigation, we thought we were on the track for some of that lost money, it's disappointing to me personally that we were unable to close this case for reasons beyond our control. I love this part. He's equally frustrated that the Bush administration, apart from his office, never investigated reports that huge amounts of money had disappeared and that after his investigators found out about the bunker, the Obama administration did not pursue that lead either. Risen notes that spokesmen for the FBI and CIA declined to comment for this article. Bowen said his investigators had briefed the CIA and FBI on what they had found, but Bowen added that he believed one reason American officials had not gone after it was because it was Iraqi money stolen by Iraqis. Now, as we recall from back in the day, the amount of missing money was more like four or five billion, which forces us to quote the late great Senator Everett Dirksen, who once said that, you know, when it came to government spending a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon it adds up to real money. But uh, anyway, you should probably dig up this article and listen and read it. You should probably dig up this article and read it, my dear listener. But it closed by noting that the office of the Special Inspector General for Iraq closed in 2013, and Bowen is now working in the private sector. Well, you did a hell of a job, Bowie. We do want to note that he actually did go to Lebanon in effort to take a look at the uh, warehouse full of shrink-wrapped cash and was told, no, no, you, you can't go there. It's, it's too dangerous. Bowen now says he thinks that at least some of the money has been moved, but said it's impossible to say whether any of it is still in the bunker. He says he is frustrated by the lack of cooperation he got from his own government in his efforts to pursue the cash. To which we have to say... Gotta say this is kind of a disturbing update to our uh, talk on last week's show and later on this week's show about uh, some of the chicanery going on, running drugs to America and guns to Central America, or... In this case, it's shrink-wrapped pallets of $100 bills to Iraq that disappeared. But it seems the common denominator to all these misdeeds is it just doesn't get investigated. Anyway, we need to take a break here. And I think uh, we probably should go out with a quote uh, 
apropos to what we've been talking about, this comes from Matt Taibbi, who noted recently that contracting corruption has been around since the construction of the Appian Way. And I'm sure it has been. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We have plenty more to talk about, in particular the new movie about Gary Webb titled Kill the Messenger. Stick around. <laughs> 